Now, have you ever watched uh, a TV series or read a book uh, series that just seems to go on a little bit too long? Do you know what I mean by that? I remember a few years ago I watched uh, a series called Lost, and originally they planned it to just go to three series. They, they got enough plot for three series, but it was so successful, they stretched it out for, I think it was seven series, uh, Lost. It just seemed to go on far too long, well past its prime. Well, there's another series that Caroline and I really enjoyed called Castle. And it seemed to finish so well at the end of season six. And then they got given an extra season and it just fizzled out. Or if you're not into anything modern, you think Last of the Summer Wine. How long did that go on for? It was, you know, good in the 80s, but it really fizzled out towards the end. And what I want to ask the question this morning to start with, is this bit after Jesus, is this sort of fizzling out? Or is this ending with a bang? Now there's a debate amongst Christians whether it is a fizzle or a bang. Is the time after Jesus before the end? Is it a crescendo of history? Is it just a sort of continuation of what went before? Or is it even a cul-de-sac that's really going nowhere? Is the church here to do something significant? Or are we just here to sort of tread water until Jesus gets back? Well the period that we're looking at this morning is that period between Jesus' death and resurrection and his return. The new world has begun in Christ, we saw that last week, but the old world is still here, isn't it? So this is what our age looks like. I've shown you this diagram before quite a while ago. But Jesus has has ascended into heaven, or we're going to see that a little bit this morning, and then we live in this time period in between, in this sort of overlap of the ages, where the new has come but the old hasn't quite yet gone. That's what gives our age a sort of fulfilment feel, but not quite there yet, a sort of now and not yet. But first of all, we're going to look at what happens in the storyline in the Bible in this period, and then we'll look at some implications. But first of all, uh, the story. And the first thing we're going to look at is the ascension. The ascension. It's often missed off, uh, but it's significant. You'll see a couple of verses on the back of your notice sheets. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then uh, Acts 5.31, God exalted him to the right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The story actually finishes with Jesus ascending into heaven. And like I say, we often miss this bit off. We talk a lot about Jesus' death, we talk a lot about his resurrection, but we don't talk a lot about his ascension. Now Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he's not there on a holiday He's not just gone to have a bit of a rest, even though he sat down. He went there to reign at the right hand of his father. And being seated at the right hand of the father is a position of authority. He's his right hand man, if you like. So what the ascension is teaching us, by showing us that Jesus ascended, not just up, but to the father's right hand, what's that that's showing us that Jesus is reigning now. His rule is not just a future reality, Jesus reigns now. He rules the world. And in this age that we live in, in this overlap, his rule is not universally acknowledged. But he is ruling. There are rebels, but he is still the king. And those rebels are the people who don't want Jesus to be king. The other name for those people is people. People in their natural state. We don't want Jesus in that position of power and authority and recognition. 
actually we want that power and authority and recognition by ourselves. We want to be king, if you like. So there are three sorts of people in this world uh, who rebel against God, if you like. There are those who seek after that power and authority. You see them chasing after that recognition. There are people who have some sort of power and authority to some degree, and they show it often in arrogance in the way that they rule. And then there are those who are sad and they're bitter because they don't have that recognition, they don't have that authority, and they feel powerless. So all those things are linked in with that idea of not wanting Jesus to be king, but it shows itself uh, in different ways. But Jesus is king. That's the first thing that we see. That's the ascension. Then the next significant event is the sending of the Spirit. The sending of the Spirit. And his coming is actually linked with the ascension. So if you look at Acts chapter 2, 33, again, that's on the back of your sheets. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that's Pentecost in this context, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So do you see here that it's because Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father that he sends the Spirit. Jesus goes up to heaven and he sends this other counsellor, the Holy Spirit into the world. And the Bible presents this as a big change in history. Think about the role of the the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He comes on a select few for specific tasks. So you remember we saw bits and bobs of that, didn't we, as we went through the Old Testament. Certain people being given the Spirit at certain times and then the Spirit being taken away from some as well. But here, as the Spirit is sent by Jesus, he dwells in every believer. He dwells in all of us. It's not just certain people for specific tasks. Actually, he lives in all believers. And that's presented as a big change uh, at Pentecost. And the Spirit in this age does two main things. There's lots of other things as well, I should say. I managed to find a list of about 50 different things the Bible uh, says the Holy Spirit does. But there are two big things I want to pick up this morning that he does. The first is that he unites us to Christ unites us to Christ. It's not an understatement that to say, without the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ is useless to us. Without the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ is useless to us. Because as the children were finding out, actually we need to be united to Christ to benefit from his work. We need to be in Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that work of bringing us into Christ. He brings us into union with Jesus. He puts us in Christ, if you like. That's the the New Testament way of describing a Christian, isn't it? The the word Christian is not used very often, but those who are in Christ is used all the time. And what that means is that all the blessings that Christ inherited, which we saw last week, they become ours. They become ours because our identity is bound up with him. So it's a bit like this. I've got a diagram for you. Imagine this is Jesus. Just imagine, because obviously we don't, don't do pictures. But it's like this is what's happened. We are now in Christ. Uh, the Bible puts it in other ways. He's being clothed in Christ. So that what is true of Christ, what Christ has got, is now ours. What is true of Christ, in some senses, is true of us if we are in him. So you remember last week we saw that Jesus is the, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. Well, in that same passage, uh, Galatians 3.29, it says, And if you are, in, uh, if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Well, hang on, last week we saw that Jesus was the offspring of Abraham. But now in the same passage, it's saying we are the offspring of Abraham. But we're the offspring of Abraham because we're in Christ. And it's not just that. Actually, there are lots of things the Bible speaks of in this way. So, uh, Jesus was buried. We see that in Matthew uh, 14, verse 12. I won't read out all these references because that'll take a while. But the Bible says that we are buried in him, in Romans. Jesus was raised from the dead. We are raised, it says in Colossians. Jesus ascended into heaven. Well, actually, Ephesians says we are now seated in heaven as well. Jesus is the son of God. Well, we're called sons of God. Jesus is the temple we saw last week. Well, we're the temple. That's what we were just singing in the hymn before. Jesus is the light of the world. Well, we're the light of the world as well. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Actually, we're filled with the Spirit as well. Uh, we just saw this one, seed of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham as well. Serpent crusher, we saw last week. Actually, we're serpent crushers as well in Romans. He's the head. We're the body. We make up one person. Because we're in Christ. So all those things now, all the promises that Christ inherited, now come to us by virtue of our union with Christ. It's really important to see that we're united to him. How does that happen? Well, the Spirit does this work in us by producing faith in us. The Spirit's work in our hearts is to give us faith in Christ. And that faith unites us to Christ. So it's the work of the Spirit, you see, to to, to bring us together. But he does it through the medium of faith. He produces faith in us. And also, as part of being united to Christ, uniting us to Christ, he sanctifies us. He makes us holy. Now, if you think about what holiness is, really, it's like that song we sing quite a lot, isn't it? Being more like Jesus. Well, that begins to make sense, doesn't it? Because it's not unrelated to being in Christ. See, this is where we are positionally. This is where God has put us in Christ. This is our status before God. When God looks at us, he sees us in Christ. So that means this morning that you are as loved as you ever can be because you are loved in Christ. You are holy in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. That's what God sees as he looks at you this morning. So there's no need to fear if you're in Christ, because that's how God sees you. But what the Spirit does in sanctifying us, in making us holy, is he takes our status, our position, and begins to make it our state. So the Spirit begins to make us into who we are in Christ. He progressively makes us more holy. He progressively makes us more righteous. He progressively makes us more like Jesus. Everything that we are in Christ, he begins to make us into. So from our perspective on earth, that means that all Christians are a bit of a work in progress. We're all starting to to grow into these things. But from God's perspective, actually we're already like his son. That's the status that God has given us. Because the spirit has united us to Christ. And that gives us security, doesn't it? That gives us hope. Because we know when we're all works in progress, we fail. But actually God sees us in Christ. 
That's the wonderful work of the Spirit. So he unites us to him. That's a wonderful truth that we, we should get our heads around. And the second thing that he does is, oh, sorry, I'll just show you the other diagram. So it feeds, remember all those things feeding into Christ? They feed out the other side to us. But the second thing we see that he does, the Spirit does, is he unites us to one another. Pentecost, if you think about it, when the Spirit comes, is the starting of the church, when they become a people. Sometimes this age in which we live in is called the church age. It's when the church begins and spreads. And we see what the church is like in that passage that we looked at, didn't we, in Acts chapter 2. We see them gathering together. We see them praying together. We see them devoted to the uh, apostles' teaching. And it's not just individual Christians that happen to be there. It's a community. They're doing these things together from home to home, day by day. And I think often as, as conservative evangelical churches, we're very good at focusing on verse 42a, where it says that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And amen, we should be devoted to the apostles' teaching as we get it in the Bible. But we're not very good at uh, 42b. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the church, the partnership that they had between them. So they were devoted to the Bible, but they were also devoted to each other. That, that was right from the start. And it means that the church is not an accident. The church is not just a mass noun for Christians. Church is a fellowship, a partnership with each other. Now it's fairly easy to express that on a Sunday, even when there's just a few of us, to gather together, isn't it? But what about on a Monday? What about on a Friday? Are we devoted to fellowship together? Just as the early Christians were. And as part of bringing us together as a church, the Spirit gives gifts for the building up of the church. He is concerned that the church is built up. Now the exact nature of those gifts is debated, but some things are really clear. The Spirit still gives gifts to Christians. And those gifts that he gives are there for the building up of the church. And the Bible is clear that every Christian is given gifts. Different gifts, but every Christian is given them. No Christian has them all. There's no sort of perfect Christian who has all the gifts. But there's no Christian that doesn't have any. And that means, actually, in God's sorting out of things, in God's arranging of things, it means that we need each other. Because he's spread the gifts out between us. It means I need you. I've got all the gifts. I can't do the church all by myself. Actually, we need each other. And without you using your gifts, the church is deficient. Because the Spirit has given you gifts to build up the church. So what gifts has he given you? It's worth just taking a maybe time this afternoon and think, what has the Spirit given me that I can use for building up the church? And if you have gifts, which you do, are you using them? And if not, is it possible that that could be grieving the Spirit? We all know how insulting it is, don't we, if you uh, give someone a gift and then you go around the house and you sort of see it sat in the box. You know what I mean? I had that situation or, you know, you give them something that obviously they should put up and it's just not there. We, we used to have um, a tiger that my granddad gave us and it, it breathed fire. It was a sort of, um, he pulled its tail, its eyes up and it breathed. We didn't know what to do with it. We never had it out when he wasn't there, but as soon as he was there, we put it, 
put it out on the mantelpiece because it's insulting, isn't it, to give, get a gift and not use it. Well, think. God hasn't given you gifts to just sit in the box. What gifts do you have that you could use for the building up of the church? Now, straight a bit into implications there in our, our looking at the storyline. But what we're seeing here is that the Spirit comes and he dwells in believers. He unites us to Christ and he unites us to one another. The next thing we see that's distinctive here is the spread of the gospel. That's what comes next, isn't it? Uh, really, we could look at the whole book of Acts, couldn't we? Uh, the unrelenting picture through the book of Acts is the gospel going forth. The church enjoys favour and the gospel spreads. The church is scattered through persecution and the gospel spreads. The church deals with admin issues and the, the gospel spreads. It's like it just can't stop spreading. Whatever's happening, the gospel is going out all the way through the book of Acts. What is the gospel that we're talking about there? Well, in Acts it uses the phrase, the word of God. The word of God spread. But that's because the gospel is bound up with the Bible. The Bible is about the gospel, and the gospel is revealed in the Bible. Now some of you are thinking, hang on again, didn't you say a few weeks ago that the Bible is all about the kingdom? And then didn't you say last week, well actually the Bible's all about Jesus, because Jesus embodies the kingdom. Now you're saying that the Bible's all about the gospel? Well the Bible is all about the gospel, um, but isn't that the kingdom of God? The good news of the kingdom, isn't that how Jesus talks about it? Didn't we say last week that the Bible is about Jesus? Well, he's the fulfilment of that kingdom. So the gospel is the message about Jesus, isn't it? Which is what the Bible's about and what the gospel's about. That's why it's almost the same uh, thing. That's incidentally why you can preach the gospel from any Bible passage. Because it's actually all about the gospel. So this message about Jesus is going forth. And there are some significant stages. There's Jerusalem, the city where the events took place. Judea, the country where that took place. Samaria, the country next door that everyone hated. Think Lancashire. Um, I thought I would get a bigger laugh, but never mind. Um, <laughs> I live there. I know what it's like. It's, it's good, to, good to be back. Yeah. Okay, think France then. Um, the, the country next door, no one likes. You get things like the conversion of the Apostle Paul, who goes to the ethne, which is translated nations, uh, Gentiles, sorry, but it also means nations. He goes to. And by the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is at the heart of the Roman Empire preaching the gospel. That's what he's doing. Churches have been planted all the way through Asia Minor and beyond. And this is the final stage, if you like, the ends of the earth that it was said that it would go to. And it shows us that this age is characterised by the proclamation of the gospel. Whereas with Israel, the, the, mission, the mission was sort of coming in, wasn't it? It was sort of centripetal if you like the scientific terms, coming into the middle. Now it's centrifugal. It's going out. It's not the nations coming in, but the church going out to the nations. And this is the task that we're left with. It's not a coincidence that Jesus' last words before his ascension had to do with mission. I think Great Commission is right before he ascends. It's like his final instructions to us. Think about it when uh, a parent leaves a child at home. There's always that last little chat, isn't there, before they go and they leave them with a babysitter or the friends are like, you know, behave yourself. Or, or, or words to that effect, or remember to brush your teeth, or wash behind your ears. It's the sort of last important message you want to leave them with. And that, for us, was mission. Go out to the ends of the earth, making disciples. That's what Jesus left us with. 
And the last 2,000 years have seen this continue. There have been some blips as we've gone along, but in general it's been characterised by the progress of the gospel. And then linked with that, we see the persecution of the church. Hand in hand as the gospel spreads, the church is persecuted. So this is a, a diagram representing our time. So some people think that uh, over time things have got better. So if you think about the, the history of the church, you think, well, there are more Christians than ever. We're actually at the ends of the earth now. We're going into all the lost tribes and the gospel has been spreading. And so the world is getting better than it's ever been. And then you get other Christians who say, no, 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 no. The world's getting worse. Look at the world around you. Persecution's increasing. More Christians died in the 20th century than any previous century before. And look, all the governments are turning against us. And there's a debate amongst Christians as to which one is true. Is it the world getting better? Or is it getting worse? Is it really the gospel is progressing or is it the persecution is increasing? And generally, I'm going to give you some long words here. Uh, these words are normally used of the, of the end, people's view of the end, which we'll come to next week. But they affect how you view the time in between the end, uh, uh, well, before the end. So post-millennials, those people who think that Jesus is coming back after a thousand year reign, think the world is getting better. That was really popular in the Victorian times because they thought progress we're going to the end of the earth, missionaries going out. And they thought the world is getting better. And when it reaches its peak, Jesus will come back. And then you have pre-millennials who say, no, 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 the world is getting worse. And when it gets to its worst point, God will take the church away. So Jesus will come back and reign later on, and then it will get better. But for now, it's getting worse. You know, look at North Korea, look at Saudi Arabia. And the church in the West is all out the window. Well, which is it? Is it that the church is getting Better, or is it the world getting better, or is it the world's getting worse? Well, I'm an amillennialist, so I believe it's both. The church is, at the same time, getting better and getting worse. You can see, that's why you can see evidence of both, can't you? The gospel is being preached, it's going further than it's ever gone before, but as the gospel is preached, that brings more persecution. So it's getting worse than it's ever been before. It's like that novel, isn't it? It's the worst of times. It was the best of times. That's the time that we live in. So the gospel brings persecution. That's, we see that in the book of Acts. We see that in our time as well. But it's both happening. This is happening at the same time. So do you see the chain here? Jesus ascends because he's ascended. He sends the Spirit. Because the Spirit comes, we're emboldened to preach. Because we preach, the gospel spreads. Because the gospel spreads, we face persecution. That's what we see as the New Testament unfolds. It's this golden chain, if you like, between them. That's what happens in the church. So what are some of the implications then of what we've been seeing? Well, if Christ is ascended, then we live under Christ's rule. If Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he is our king, whether we like it or not. One day he will return to rescue his subjects, but to condemn his enemies. We can bow the knee now, or we can face his wrath in judgment. And that sounds harsh, doesn't it, in a way? But we're not dealing with trifling matters, are we? We're dealing with life and death. There's a film called The Terminator, uh, which was big quite a few years ago now, and there's a line in it where the, 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 the Terminator sort of puts out his hand and says, come with me if you want to live. Now, I imagine if, if the Terminator, it was played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, I imagine if he was British, 
it would be probably more something like putting out his hand going, would you mind awfully coming with me if it's not too much trouble, if you could possibly uh, come along? But it doesn't fit the gravity of the situation, does it? And it's the same here. If Jesus is king, then actually he says to us, come with, come with me if you want to live. Come to Christ. And Christians this morning, are you living with Christ as your king? If people looked at your life, would they know that he was your king on Tuesday as well as Sunday? If you're a, an older person here this evening, if Jesus looked at your retirement plans, would they see Christ in there or the same as everyone else? Younger folks, if people looked at your dreams and your hopes for your life, would they see Jesus as king in them? So it's a live under Christ's rule. Secondly, we are united together to Christ by his spirit. I unpacked this a lot when we went through it before, but I just want to ask really, are you in Christ? That's the only safe place in the world. It's like the ark that we've been seeing on Sunday evening, the the safe place from God's wrath. If you are in Christ, do you actively believe that? Our old selves try to trick us that we're not. They try to say that we're not on the ark, but we are on the ark. But it's, it's tempting, isn't it, to act almost as though we're drowning. We feel it sometimes, like we're drowning in the flood, but actually we're safe on the ark. So we need to preach this to ourselves, especially when we fail. When we look at things that we shouldn't on the internet. When we make that unkind comment behind someone's back. When we become bitter about our lives that God has given us. We need to preach this to ourselves. I am a child of God. I am righteous in Christ. I am dead to sin and alive to righteousness. I am as loved as I ever could be. Now if we get this wrong, we won't lose our salvation. But we will become ineffective. We'll be thrashing about on the floor, trying to keep our head above some imaginary water. And we could be doing something useful for the kingdom. I'm thinking about sanctification by the Spirit. Are we helping one another? To become more like Jesus. The Spirit does it, doesn't he? But he doesn't supernaturally sort of zap us. At some sort of strange sanctification ray. That he sort of fires at us. No, actually he uses means to sanctify us. It's a bit cliched, but he usually uses three. They're cliched, but miss them at your peril. He uses the Bible. He uses the word to grow it, to grow us. So are we reading it? If not, we're sort of a beggar sitting on a beach of gold to quote Mike and the Mechanics. Because we've got it there, but are we actually using it? Are you helping others to read the Bible? If you signed up to do the Bible reading scheme with someone, have you met up to chat about it? Have you sort of helped each other do that? That's the first means, the word of God. The second means is prayer. Are you talking to God? Ask the Lord to make you more like Jesus. Are you helping others pray? Personally, me as the, the pastor here, I don't hear you preach. Often there's one or two, obviously, who do. But I hear you pray. And that's such an encouragement to me, to hear you pray. I find it really, really encouraging. And I'm guessing it's the same for most of us, that when we actually hear people pray, that's encouraging to us. That's why we do it in groups. There's something about it, isn't it, that lifts the spirit as you hear people talking to our Heavenly Father. So are people missing out on your prayers if you're not involved in praying with other people? So he's given us prayer. He's also given us the church. He's given us each other to speak to one another, to pray for one another. 
So are we a church in name only, or do we do that partnership? Do we do that fellowship? Thirdly, we're to proclaim the gospel. We're to proclaim the gospel. Our job is the same with the disciples, to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're helped by the fact, uh, in biblical terms, that we are already there. We are at the ends of the earth. Uh, that's how Paul would have understood it, as uh, he, uh, he talked about it, how Luke would have understood it. And I want to say that actually Britain is as much as a mission field as Brazil. In fact, more so. Did you know that in Brazil, it's 26% of people in Brazil now are reckoned to be Bible-believing Christians? 20, 26%, that's amazing, isn't it? In Yorkshire, it's 0.4%. We live at the ends of the earth. And that doesn't make it harder, in a way. It does in some ways. But in other ways, it makes it easier. God has given us something that we all can do. We have gospel need on our doorsteps. If we believe in the promised power of the gospel, if we believe that Christ is reigning, then we don't need to go to Brasilia. We can go to Burley. We don't have to go to Rio. We can go to Rawdon. We don't have to go to the New World. We can go next door. But we mustn't use that as an excuse not to go next door. If we actually say we're going to do that, we need to do that. It's not enough to just know that you're not called to overseas mission. If God hasn't placed you overseas, it's because he's got work for you to do here. He's placed you next to people who need the gospel. It just so happens to be where you live now, which God is in control of as well. So we need to get out and about with the gospel. Whatever it looks like, we should all be doing something. There's a famous quote from Moody, who was criticised about his methods in evangelism. And he said, well, you may, you may well be right, but I prefer the way I do evangelism to the way that you don't. It's better to do something, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not exactly what we'd like to do. It's better to do something than to not do anything. We want to be those who do. And I'm speaking to myself here as well. Too often we're sitting in the pews rather than standing on the promises. We're too comfortable in our mediocre lives to live for something greater. We have to proclaim the gospel. That's the task that we're left with in this age. And then finally in this section, we are to expect persecution. If we live in this age where the world is getting worse as well as getting better, we should expect persecution. And surprise, surprise, that's what we see, isn't it? I just had a brief look on the internet at the Barnabas Fund and uh, Open Doors. These are some of the headlines just from January. New Year begins with four Egyptian Christians murdered in three separate attacks. Burma, missing pastor confirmed detained by Burmese army. Turkey, American pastor detained. That's just the ones that get out. What about the horrors of North Korea and some Middle Eastern countries? There are more people become Christians every year, but equally there are more persecuted Christians every year. So it shouldn't take us by surprise when we meet it. We shouldn't think that God's plan is no longer working. We serve a crucified saviour. So should we expect anything less as we take that message out? So then finally, just to close briefly, the big picture. The big picture. So what have we seen? Well, let's go to our big uh, diagram. We see God's people, the church, the new Israel. So in the age we live, think about the 12 disciples. They're like a picture of the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. We in Christ become the new Israel. We're a new humanity as well. New men and women in Christ. 
God's place? Well, we're the new temple, aren't we? The church. So uh, Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We often talk about Christians being temples of the Holy Spirit, which is true, but it's also the church corporately as well. There's a sense in which we're being built together to be a dwelling place for God. So we're a new temple, we're also a new creation. That's what we sang in that hymn, wasn't it? We are his new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. All those things we are by virtue of being in Christ. Those things flow out to us. And then finally, God's rule and blessing. We live under Christ's word and the new covenant. Christ's word, well it's, it's the whole Bible seen in the light of Christ. Uh, I'm not a big fan of lead, lead retta. Red letter Bibles. Um, I, I would, I, what I want to do, I want to get in touch with Jonathan Carswell at ten of those and see if they'll produce me a Bible that's all in red. Because it's all the word of Christ. Uh, all of it is to be seen in the light of Christ. It's not like there are special bits. All of it needs to be seen through him. And we're under Christ's word. And we're under the new covenant. That's better than the one we had before. We'll see that more as we go through Hebrews. We live at the end of the ages, the end of the age of fulfilment. The promises have been fulfilled. This is better than it was before. So this age is not just an overhang. It's not just an extra series that sort of fizzles out. The fact that this is a better covenant shows us this is the best bit of history to live in. This is the crescendo at the end of time. The fulfilment of all that's gone before. And in this age, God has poured on us blessings, hasn't he? Blessing after blessing, every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly realms it says, forgiveness, adoption, the spirit in us, the knowledge of his will, all of it is in Christ. Because we're in him through the spirit. All of it's to the praise of his glory. Now hopefully before you think this sermon has gone on past its best, we're going to close uh, by singing uh, about those blessings that we have in Christ. And the words here as we sing are taken from Ephesians chapter 1, which speak about us being in Christ and what we have in him. So let's stand and sing and praise and glorify our God.